Hey, this is Katie Sackoff, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... I didn't get joy from my job. Mm -hmm. And I was really sitting with that one day going, well, you have what is many people's dream job. You have a fantastic job. And it's not bringing you joy. So what will bring you joy? And upon further exploration, I realized that the only thing I had consistently done all of my life that nobody had ever asked me to do, nobody had ever paid me to do, but I did it because I loved it so much was writing. And um, I decided that, well, if that's the case, then the thing that you want to do, even when no one's paying you to do it, is the thing you should aspire to get paid to do. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and therorbots.com. You can find us on the socials at thegbbpodcast. You can find me, uh, I'm Jamie, at therorbots. And joining me this week is Shiri, and you can find me at SW Sondheimer on Twitter and at irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. How you been? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, we were just talking offline a little bit. We took an unexpected vacation, I guess you could call it. A hiatus. <laughs> hiatus. It was an unexpected hiatus for a few weeks, uh, but we're back. And uh, this episode, this interview, we actually did quite a while ago now. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even remember. I could, I mean, I could look, but it doesn't really matter. But we did this at least two months ago, months ago. I think. I feel like it was um, February, maybe. Yeah, it's been a while, but it was intentional that we held on to this for so long um, because she has her books coming out now-ish. Um, and a better podcaster would actually have those dates in front of me, but I believe that they are available now. And so that's why we held on to them. But we are just thrilled to bring you this week our conversation with Evangeline Lilly, which kind of was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, we got a, and it wasn't just a, um, you know, like a 10 minute quick PR blitz. Let's ask the same questions about a movie that she's promoting and that and, she's not and, allowed and, to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, you know, I, I often I see these things on Twitter or online of people who get invited to these advanced screenings or they get invi- invited to these, um, you know, roundtable discussions to promote a movie. And so many of these movies, the actors can't talk about it. So they give the same stock answers to everything, which are basically non-answers. And you only get about five minutes if you can even ask a question of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was really special because we were talking about her new series of children's books. And we got a long time with her. So mm-hmm. we got we got we were fortunate enough to have like a fairly in-depth, good, solid, interesting, enjoyable conversation with her. Yes. And I was, I will admit going in, I was intimidated and she's lovely and super so, chill. And why were you intimidated? I know she's famous, Nan. <laughs> <laughs> Just because she's famous? Well, you, she's we've famous. talked to lots of famous people though. I know. Writers are a little different. <laughs> it is true. At I mean, least it, in, my, in my brain, in my brain, it, writers are a little different. It is true. You know, you could talk to, I mean, we've talked to some, some pretty A-list writers too. And it's just, it is something, there is something different about talking to an actor that you, you know, maybe have seen in movies or you see on TV a lot. And it's kind of, they're, they're just people, you know? And I mean, they're, they're doing the same thing. They're just doing, putting their skill to use, but there is something different about that. Well, but what's interesting is that, you know, when, when you ask her, when you asked her how she viewed herself in terms of her career, um, you know, her answer was that she views herself as a writer and acting is her day job. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, what, what did she say? She said, I'm a writer with a really fantastic day job. Day job, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which which is cool. Um, and that really was why we were talking to her. You know, she we obviously talked to her well before Endgame came out, mm-hmm. um, well before we even saw trailers for that movie. So there was nothing that we were able to talk about. I mean, we tried. You know, we, we tried to... <laughs> we did try. <laughs> I mean, we, know that, we knew that there was nothing that she could really say. Toward the end, we kind of, you know, skirt the corners and, and maybe bring it in just a little bit to talk about, knowing that she wasn't going to tell us anything about the movie. Um, but so that's why we don't talk more about Endgame um, and the MCU in, in general is because we talked to her months ago before the movie came out. And the real reason we did talk to her, as I keep saying, was because of this children's book, The Squicker Wonkers. Um, and what, what kind of boggles my mind is that this series is intended to be 19 books. It's amazing. It's, it is amazing. And when you, when you think about graphic novels, and this is more of a, I guess you would call it a picture book series, because the page count is a little bit lower than what you would necessarily think about as like a, um, a graphic novel from a big publisher. But they're a little bit longer than a standard picture book, too. True, true. They're more of like a, a chapter book in picture book form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as long as as something like like Bone or Amulet or or something like that that might come out from Scholastic or First Second Books. Um, they're definitely longer than a monthly comic book. Uh, they're they're longer than your standard thirty two page picture book. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scope of this thing is what kind of blows my mind. So she's they've they've come out with the first two. One which is sort of like a quote unquote preface to the entire series. Um, and then the first book in the series. And the ultimate plan here is to, um, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because the ultimate plan is to sort of explore each character in this world with a separate book. Um, and in, in each book, and this might be giving something away, but I think it's kind of like the conceit of the, of the series is that each book, that character kind of comes to his or her demise at the end. Um, and then the second half of the series is sort of everybody coming back together. So in a way, it's kind of very Avengers-ish. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you think about Infinity War, like half of everybody disappearing and then and trying to bring everybody back together, um, it kind of might take a cue from that, though it is very, very different. This is not superhero fare. This is, this is dark, kid-friendly comedy, I think. Yes. You can get a little more of an idea on the website, which is the squickerwonkers.com. You can look at the individual characters and which books are out and which books are coming. The prequel and act one are the ones that are out right now. Yeah. And it's, again, I know a lot of series start off with these grand visions and these huge ideas for where it's going to go. I feel like, after talking to her and the dedication that she has to the story and these characters in this world, I feel like she might see it through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know how long it's going to take, but she, you know, she did mention that she's already a couple, a few books ahead and that this is what she's doing now. You know, mm-hmm. like she has her day job. So, you know, occasionally she'll get in front of a camera and do some acting, but this is where her heart is. And this is what she fills her days with. Um, it, you know, it's writing, working with the illustrator and building out these stories. Right. And she also, you know, she said she's at the point with her acting where she can be a little more selective about what she takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and she can do the projects that she wants to do, which gives her um, a little more time for writing which is kind of every writer's dream is to be able to you know just do their day job when they want (laughs) i know that's my dream as a writer so um that that's a cool place to be as a writer it is a cool place to be especially when that day job is fairly lucrative yeah she she definitely (laughs) gets paid more for her day job than i do yeah and you know she can try to retire but then gets pulled out of retirement to do a little film called The Hobbit, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, that doesn't happen to everybody either. So she is incredibly fortunate, and she recognizes that as well. Yes, Um, yes. Well, we're going to stop rambling. I mean, this we do talk primarily about the Squicker Wonkers. 
Um, as I said, we we kind of hint at some Marvel questions. We do talk about we did talk about Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings that's done. So she could talk about that, <laughs> right? And we we asked her, you know, again, knowing that she wasn't going to say anything, even if she could. Um, if she were going to have any involvement in the Amazon, uh, the up- upcoming Amazon prequels, I right. guess is what you're going to call it. Um, spoiler, no, she doesn't know anything about it, but um, probably would come back if asked. Uh, but I don't know how they would they would work that. But it's a great conversation. It was just a thrill to have her on. She is incredibly sweet, incredibly down to earth, incredibly humble. And go check out the Squicker Wonkers. Go go to Amazon. Go to Barnes and Noble. Go to your favorite, you know, local bookstore. Check out the books. Pick up the first two now, and start hounding her and the publisher for when the next ones are going to come out. Because mm-hmm. I kind of can't wait. They're 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 a lot of fun. And my they're kids fun. are getting a little bit beyond picture books at this point, even though I will never be beyond picture books. Uh, so I, I'm along for the ride on this one. I, I will be following along with great interest as, as Palpatine would say. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thanks you for hitting subscribe. Thank you for bearing with us during our unexpected hiatuses and, uh, come back next week. We're going to have another episode, another interview, another fantastic conversation. You can find us at thegbbpodcast.com and therorbots.com. You can find me everywhere at therorbots and Shiri. Uh, at SW Sonheimer on Twitter and at irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Evangeline Lilly. So we are talking about the Squicker Wonkers, and I am fascinated about stories that have lived with people for as long as this one seems to have lived with you. And I understand that you originally wrote like the first draft or the first version of the story when you were only fourteen. That's right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know too many stories that have lived with people as long as this one has lived with me. Um, I, I was trying to do the math recently, and I was like, oh, wow, that's like 25 years this thing has been with me. I, um, I, yeah, I was a little, I was a reclusive young woman. Um, I was a bit of a loner. I was, um, you know, I was somebody who came to literature really, really late. And when I did, I just fell in love with such a passion that um, I kind of became very focused on uh, not just reading but writing as well and never seriously just for fun like that was my idea of a great Friday afternoon you know Friday yeah. night at home with myself at 14 was sitting around and and writing yeah that sounds awesome and so yeah <laughs> I know right that's everybody's idea of a good Friday <laughs> um and I was I was really late a late bloomer when it came to books so at the time I was really into Dr. Zeus Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, uh, where most people are into him at four, I was into him at 14. <laughs> and I think it was that the kind of more adult side of me had started to realize what a brilliant writer he was in a much more adult way. Like the, the subtlety of the messages that he had thread into these simple, silly poems really struck me as um, as meaningful. And it, and it sort of struck me that like, oh, wow, this adult took the time to put really sophisticated, important messages into my childhood stories. And those have impacted me unconsciously. And I, I just really, I dug Zeus and I respected Zeus. And I dug the way he had this sort of irreverent use of language. You know, like if he was making a rhyme and he was lacking a sufficient rhyming word, he would just make just, one up. Right. And then, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I just thought that's that's so great. It's so cool that he's like, I don't care. I'm going to make up my own words if I want to, and it'll be silly and wonderful. And and it was silly and wonderful. So I said, I want to make up my own words. And I started making a list of silly, irreverent, wonderful words. And one of the words on that list just stuck in my head and on my tongue, and I really liked it. And that word was squickerwonker. And I didn't know what a squicker wonker was. <laughs> I just knew I liked the word. And that began this kind of fun little exercise I, I began that night of like, what is a squicker wonker? And deciding it was this group of misfits who didn't belong, 
and who were full of vices and who often were able to sort of get away with bad stuff. And But they were fun and they were um, kind of cute and, and redeemable in and their likability, and um, and it sort of kept going from there, and it, it culminated into what has now become a series of potentially 20 children's books, mm-hmm. um, all all about this group of, this band of misfit marionette puppets. So what led you from, you know, as a 14-year-old sitting down and, and just sort of saying, okay, this is fun, I like to do this, this, you know, I, and I've, I've come up with the Squicker Wonker, and I think I know what it is. What led from that to, at some point, relatively recently saying, okay, now I'm going to make this a real thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some time and effort right. into that? Yeah. Well, um, my mother had told me when I first wrote it and then read it to her, that's very good. You should publish it. And I yeah. and I sort of took that with a grain of salt because everybody's mom thinks their stuff yeah. is really good and they should publish it. Right? Like, <laughs> and I always think that it was good, and that doesn't necessarily mean it is good. And um, and it really took. It was a very long journey from that point to deciding to actually um, make something of the story. Um, and that journey essentially was me becoming an actress. Um, quasi by accident, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> my first speaking role in film and television was on a show called Lost, and I was very unhappy. Um, I didn't, I didn't get joy from my job, mm-hmm. and I was um, really sitting with that one day, going, "Well, you have what is many people's dream job. You have a fantastic job." And it's not bringing you joy. So what will bring you joy? And upon further exploration, I realized that the only thing I had consistently done all of my life that nobody had ever asked me to do, nobody had ever paid me to do, but I did it because I loved it so much, was writing. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided that, well, if that's the case, then the thing that you want to do, even when no one's paying you to do it, is the thing you should aspire to get paid to do. And um, so for about five years, I started telling people publicly, even in the press, you know, I, I'm a writer. I want to be a writer. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, cut to um, probably about five years later, I have retired from acting, mm-hmm. or supposedly retired <laughs> from acting. <laughs> I've written many, many, many things. I've never aspired to do anything with any of them yet. And I get a call from Peter Jackson, and um, he manages to get through to me through my my partner and says, I really want you to be an elf in these new Hobbit films I'm going to make. And Tolkien happened to have been one of my favorite authors as a a young woman. And I had fantasized right around the same time that I was making the Flicker Wonkers about being a woodland elf. That was my, that was the quintessential character that if I could have done anything in Middle Earth, I would have been a a, a a woodland elf. And I, and I, and I just could not refuse the job. It was a fantasy (laughs) come true. And so I flew off to New Zealand with my firstborn child, who was only three months old at the time, and started work on these movies. And Peter's team out in New Zealand are such an incredible inspiration for anybody who is creative, because not only is everybody working creatively towards this one incredible, enormous end, but you realize as you get into it, everybody also has all these little side projects. Everyone mm-hmm. has their passion projects that they're working on. And those passion projects are really encouraged and fostered by Peter Jackson, Richard Taylor, and their team of, of leaders. They really love and believe in people having their, their passions realized. And so I'm in this foray of creative mayhem going, well, wait a minute, I have passion. Like, I want to do something. I want in on this. It's just, it felt like a dream come true. And so I I went ahead and approached Richard Taylor, who runs the Water Workshop, and said, I want to write books, and I'd like to start with children's books, um, because I was so impacted by children's books. And uh, do you have any illustrators who would be interested in working with me? And he introduced me to Johnny Fraser Allen, Johnny Fraser Allen um, had such such outside the box, fun, delicious, dark, uh, wonderful ideas to contribute to the Squicker Wonkers, and 
so we got together and we kind of uh, we, I did a major rewrite on the story um, to incorporate a lot of Johnny's ideas and also just because the story had matured since being from being in my brain for so long mm-hmm. and um, and and we decided to you know make a book together. I have stood at the Weta booth at both Emerald City Comic Con and San Diego for. Like, I lose track of time just standing there and watching them do stuff. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, does not even matter what they're doing, whether it's something that I do or not. Just standing there and watching them do makeup or modeling or whatever they're doing at the time. And look yeah. down at my phone, and it's been an hour. <laughs> right. <And laughs> it's, it's, ama- you're, it's amazing. It's um, amazing, and it's inspiring so inspiring i mean i just feel like anybody who is creative who hangs out with those guys is going to start getting itchy you know you just start <laughs> getting that itch you want you want to do it too so oh, horror for children is becoming a more visible visible genre what what drew you to it as an author and why do you think it's important for kids to have access to it Oh man, that's such a big question. The first part is easy uh, to answer. The second part is pretty loaded. Um, the first part about what drew me to it is that um, I am an avid reader. I'm, I'm what what some people would call a bibliophile now. I and I love books and and I live for reading. I live for books. I live for writing. I love that, and it's sort of like breath to me. And surprisingly, I was a kid who hated books. I. I I want to swear. Am I allowed to swear? Anybody? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> we do it all the time. I know it's appropriate when I'm talking about children's books. I fucking hated books. You know, I just, they were, I was a very slow reader and I was, a, I was a smart young woman, but I, I was a, or a little girl, but I, I didn't know that because the, at that age, when you're sort of in those primary, you know, like elementary school ages, the kids who are considered smart are the kids who are really good readers. And I wasn't, I just wasn't, I was really, really slow. And I found that if you handed me a chapter book, I was completely overwhelmed and gave up before I even began. And um, my grandfather was an educator. He was the president of a college in the area where I lived. And he used to give us for Christmas these really bizarre, kooky, off the beaten path kind of books. And often they were dark. And they were the only books that ever got through to me. And Edward Gorey uh, was one of the authors that um, impacted me in that he wrote like harrowing horror for mm. children. Um, and he wrote maybe, you know, five to 12 words on a page. And most of the page was an illustration. And yet, the topics that he was tackling, like death and disease and tragedy, were so sophisticated and mature that I felt like he was winking at me and nudging me and saying, I know just because you don't like to read doesn't mean you're stupid. I know you're smart. And I know you can handle um, these sophisticated topics. I know you're smart enough to internalize them and to be able to understand the humor that is inherent in tragedy. And he put, I mean, his books, in my opinion, were all comedies. They were just black comedies. They were dark comedies. And I, and I got it. And it made me feel like I had this special secret with him that like he knew, he knew I was smart. He knew I understood life beyond what most adults thought I understood that I saw all the horrible things adults did and I got, and I understood it and I could process it and I could deal with it. Whereas a lot of stuff was sort of sheltering me from all of, all of that saying, you're just a little kid. Hmm. You can't handle this. And I knew I could. And I was, I was a child who came from, you know, a difficult home. And so I was dealing with heavy stuff at home and I, and I had, and it was just reaffirming to me, to see that stuff reflected in the literature I was looking at instead of, you know, teddy bears and bubble gum and unicorns, which just did not resonate with my reality at all. And therefore was not very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I look at, you know, why I think it's important for kids to have access to 
dark material in in the stuff that they're reading. Um, I, I think it's important to first say that I think children need access to idealistic material as well, because that's what gives us the markers we are aspiring to. You know, this is reality, but this is what we hope we can make reality. And that's important too. But I think there's a danger in only presenting children with what we aspire to, because then if they only see what we aspire to, they have no constructive way of processing what they're actually dealing with and faced with on a daily basis, because nobody in their books is guiding them through that stuff. And so to me, I think it's important that some literature represents the darkness that they face in their life, not just at home, but even on the playground. I always say the Squickerwonkers, the pre-show, is just a strictly a playground drama. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bunch of bullies that come up and do something mean to somebody for absolutely no reason, and then she has a choice of how she's going to react and how she'll deal with that. Mm-hmm. And that's what children, I think, are, you know, I've got a seven-year-old boy who deals with that every single day. He comes home with a story of somebody who is unnecessarily cruel, and then we got to talk about how do you deal with that. Not like go to the school and say, that child should be removed, because that's not reality. There's always going to be mm-hmm. somebody picking on somebody everywhere you go in life. But to talk to my child and say, okay, so that happened. Yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. How are you going to deal with that? Now what? Yeah. Now what? Now who are you in the face of that hardship? Because that's what will bring you happiness is mm-hmm. an understanding who you are, even in the mire, even in the murk, even in the horror, you know, that that's 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 our internal guide that's our internal compass and back in the day the Grimm's brothers used to tell these horrific stories that modern day parents often kind of cringe at and go good god like what's wrong with <laughs> what was wrong with children <laughs> but there was a tradition of preparing children for the hardships of reality and and a time when things were i think a lot harder for a lot of people and nowadays um it's it's there are subtler hardships. They're harder to put your finger on. It's not as much a little girl being eaten by a wolf in the woods. It's like, is, is, is mommy um, hooked on opioids or is daddy a workaholic who is going to die of a heart attack in three months because he can't stop working or they're, they're harder, stranger, more difficult things to identify. And so just allowing children to have the freedom to explore those spaces of like things don't always feel right or feel good and they won't always feel right or feel good is important to me as a as a storyteller i mean i've so in looking at the first two books um i mean the the influence of of somebody like edward gory definitely comes through uh, and this you don't you don't end on sunshine and fairy and, and, and rainbows. You know the stories they're they're dark by nature and they have dark endings. So how do you balance that that desire to tell a story that is dark and has a dark ending and nothing it doesn't end happily ever after, um, but still have kids want to come back for the next book and still be engaged? Right. Well, there's a there's a few layers to that. One is that nowadays I think. Um, there's a palette for um, longer form storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the, the sort of revolution in television, um, both adults and children are getting more accustomed to knowing that they have to wait longer for the payoff to get their answers and that they might have to suffer through the unknowing or the difficult for a little longer before they get to the end. So I do think there is a little bit more of a, of a patience and a palette for that now than there was, say, 10 years ago. Um, and there is definitely <coughs> um, redemption and payoff that come through the series, um, and you sort of have to you have to bide your time and wait for it. Similar to life, where yeah. you know a lot of times you have to sort of wait through the hard stuff to get to get to some sunshines and rainbows, you know, <laughs> here and there. They do they do come. You know, yeah. life isn't all all bad. Um, and also, one of the things that I really focused on when um, I started with the new illustrator, so Johnny did the first book, and then for the series, I, I set up with an illustrator from Brazil, whose name is Rodrigo Bastos Pidier. <laughs> and one of the first things I said to him was, 
I, I, what I'm looking for is like a shift from what we did in the first book, what I did in the, the, um, the sort of prequel essentially to the series with Johnny is I want the visuals to be clearly lighter and more redemptive a little more beautiful, a little bit prettier, a little bit happier, mm. so that children have are given a visual cue. And in the instance of the audiobook, mm. I do this with the composer, they're given an audio cue that this is meant to be fun and silly, that we can laugh at life's tragedies, that we can wink at each other and nudge each other and know that that it's, it's all going to be, you know, that there is an okayness, that everything's that these characters similar to um, the Looney Tunes characters who have anvils dropped on their head, that they're not actually experiencing trauma the way mm. we would if we had an anvil dropped on our head. Um, and so there is a kind of slapstick nature to the series that is meant to make children giggle and laugh. And the ending, I got given this wonderful advice from my first editor who said to me, your darkest moment must be your funniest. Hmm. Hmm. And I thought that was excellent advice. And so the ending of uh, the demise of Sam of the Spoiled, the ending of the demise of Lorna the Lazy, and the ending of the audiobooks, which I can't tell you the title of because it's coming out next month <laughs> and it's a surprise, um, is uh, they're, they're all, the, they're meant to be, they're designed to be the darkest moment and the funniest moment. Um, and then, you know, if you pay close attention, I don't know if you guys were able to get sent physical copies of, um, the demise of some of the spoiled. But if you pay close attention, the book is filled with Easter eggs. And those Easter eggs are for the childlike me and the childlike the kids who will one day grow up to be lost fans <laughs> who are looking for that, you know, that they have to dig a little harder, they have to dig a little deeper to find subtler meanings and hidden Easter eggs and, you know, little hints and clues as to what's really going on. And for those kids, there is just a plethora of them in the visual book. Um, and one of them is the very last scene where you see Selma the Spoiled running from the wagon to her loving, the loving arms of her grandpa and Papa the Proud watching, dismayed and perplexed that this little girl somehow managed to get free of her vice. <laughs> and so um, it's all in there. There's redemption and there's darkness, there's humor. And there's horror, um, and it's just really designed for kids who w want to have that kind of level of sophistication, but not necessarily commit to a 300-page novel, which I couldn't have done at that age. Right. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's planned to be 19 books. How much of that do you have planned out and written at the moment? So I write the books um, as I go. I write the books for the audio release. And the audio release is actually quite rapid now. We've been releasing an audiobook every um, three months-ish mm -hmm. right now. So I'm writing, uh, you know, basically as fast as I can to get the audiobook released to keep that pace. But the outline for the series is very involved. It's very detailed and it's complete. So I know the beginning, the middle, and the end. I know every story in between and I know where we're going. There are only two stories at the moment out of 20 books that I have not fully outlined in detail because they're hard nuts to crack. Yeah. But I know, I know what I got to do in them. I just haven't cracked them yet. And other than that, every other book, um, another great advice that piece of advice my first editor gave me was he was also a children's storybook author. And he told me, if you're going to write in rhyme, you must first write in prose and then turn it into rhyme or hmm. your story will become driven by the rhyme instead mm. of by the story, by the plot. Fantastic advice. So that's what I've done for, <coughs> excuse me, all the books, is I've written the basic prose outline of what exactly happens in the story. And then <clears throat> now all that's left is to sit down and actually turn them into poetry, which is an undertaking. Yeah. Uh, some of them come really quickly, and it, it just seems like, the easiest thing ever, Andy, the arrogance story, uh, his demise story came so easy. Sparky, the spectacles is like killing me. <laughs> it's hard, you know, so each one is different. Yeah. Acting and writing are both forms of storytelling, obviously. Do you find there are any similarities between them? 
are they just totally I, different creatures? <laughs> There's a great Ernest Hemingway quote that says, um, "The I'm gonna I'm not gonna get it verbatim. It won't be exactly right, but basically it says um, um, the, the the most important thing an author can have, aside from honesty, is imagination, and." I think that you need honesty and imagination for both of those jobs. But I would say even beyond, even more importantly than for me, than honesty and imagination uh, is empathy. And I think that's the core muscle that I pull on as an actor is I read a story. And if I can innately empathize with that character and feel their pain and, and in some way, maybe not understand it, but connect to it, um, then I know I could play that character. And, and I have to be able to empathize with the entire story or I'm not interested in representing the script. And I have to empathize with the goals of the director or I'm not going to be able to collaborate well with him. And so I find the same thing happens with story is a lot of the times I think unconsciously I go through life and I'm watching other human beings and their struggles and their joys and their experiences. And I'm interested because, <clears throat> excuse me, I empathize with it, though I don't feel it. It's not my story. It's not what I'm going through. I'm, I'm, I really feel strong empathy for their experience and their feelings and their story. And I think it makes that empathy makes me want to explore what would it feel like to be in that person's shoes? What would it feel like to go through experiences like that? And then that leads me to a pen and paper. And then I, that's where I explore it. Hmm. I wonder, is tied in that empathy, how tied up in that empathy is your other role as a mother? You know, and being the mother of two boys, does that affect the roles that you take or the stories that you choose to write? Well, um, it's interesting because I have... I have always said no to that question because I find that um, my, like, for example, I, I was, I would have done The Hobbit whether I'd had my child or not. But it mm -hmm. does seem like interesting timing that I just become a mother and I now dove into this family fiction, you know, this family fantasy mm -hmm. uh, franchise. And then, you know, I would have said yes to Marvel whether I had my son or not, but it is pretty serendipitous that my seven-year-old boy now has the wasp as a mother and is like, this is the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> 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 He's like at the prime age for that stuff, you know? Um, and then also kind of serendipitously or interestingly, I wrote the Squicker Wonkers long before I was having children and I, and I started pursuing it uh, right after I had my first child, but he has gone through ups and downs of liking and disliking the Squicker Wonkers. Mm. And during the periods of time where he has disliked it, which was primarily four and five years old, he loved it at three. He got back into it at six and seven, four and five. He really didn't like it. Mm. And um, I, it really challenged me because I, I sort of felt like, oh, wait, like if he doesn't like it and he's kind of coming into that prime age for he's a little bit young, but pretty close, then have I done a poor job? Right. Is it not good? Because he's a little kid and it's meant for him. And and then it was interesting to watch him come back to it. And now like his favorite Squitzer Walker's book, I won't tell you the name of it because it's not out yet, but he gets to see everything before it's out. But <laughs> he, he loves it. He loves it. And he asks for it the way he asks for his favorite book. And it's been a very um, healthy reminder to me that not every book is for every kid and you're never going to make a book that every kid likes mm -hmm. um, because, you know, kids are individuals the way adults are individuals. We have all our own individual tastes and interests and, um, you know, inclinations. And so uh, I, I don't sort of, uh, it was a good lesson for me not to let his opinion of my writing necessarily dictate if I think my writing is worthwhile or not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do do you use them as like sounding boards? Do you bounce ideas off of them and then change the story based on their reactions? Well, I think that um, it, watching what, yes, first of all, I do. Um, in fact, I was making a decision about um, how, what sort of special effects to put on the printing of the cover of the book. And he has a seven-year-old uh, cousin who's a female. And so my niece and my son, I got them together and I showed them both versions. And I said, which one do you, would you guys grab if you went to the bookstore? Which one, you know, what appeals to you? And, and I went with their, their decision, like what they said they would reach for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also... Did they agree? Know, play him the, yeah, they agreed. They agreed, <laughs> although, although um, for very different reasons, which hmm. is interesting. Very different reasons. My son's was a very uh, kind of mathematical reason, which is unsurprising. And hers was a much more kind of tactile artistic reason. So that was really fascinating. Um, But yeah, I'll do things like that. But also what I find is great research is just bringing new books to my son all the time. And when I read to him and I see what he reacts to, it helps me realize, um, you know, what some kids are responding to. And that's the tricky thing is I go, well, he responds to that. But like my niece who lives right next door, she responds to completely different things. So, you know, it's, I, I use it, but I, it's not a rule. It's not a hard and fast rule. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. see yourself as a writer who happens to act or as an actor who writes when you have the time? <laughs> I see myself as a writer who has a fantastic day job. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, acting is my bread and butter. It's what puts a roof over my family's head and food on our table. And it's something that I rely on very, very heavily and, and is important to me, you know, and it's my livelihood. But um, my passion, my truest passion, really the thing that, that fills me, that makes me feel whole as a human being is the writing. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've done before in the past is um, I went to an art school and I was speaking to students at this art school and um, I was spontaneously asked to give a 15-minute speech. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, what am I going to talk to these kids about? And I just went with whatever came out of my mouth and I thought it was really uh, interesting to observe that one of the things I was encouraging them with was you know, I think nowadays in 2019, there's a lot of emphasis put on you must have your passion be your livelihood. Mm. And I think there's such an, an innate danger in teaching young people that somehow they have failed at life if they have to have some kind of a grind. You know, the job that they do because they need a job and they need food and they need a house and they need to pay their bills. If that job is not their passion, if it's somehow they've failed, that that's, that they're not doing life very well. And I just think that's not true. And I think if you are lucky enough to have a job that supports you and gives you enough stability that in your free time, you can pursue your passion then you've succeeded. You know, that's, that's a beautiful existence. And to be lucky enough, I consider myself very lucky that I have a job that gives me so much stability that I can spend, you know, hours and days and free moments working in my passion and doing what I'm most passionate about. That's, that's, that's more than enough. (laughs) Jamie and I were just having that conversation like two days ago. Yeah. It's interesting because it's not, it's not only not something that is routinely told to kids or students, but it's having, you know, hundreds of conversations just for this podcast. It's not something I often hear from other creative people. You know, other creative people tend to take that position that, they need to devote 100% of their time to their passion. And if it makes them the quote unquote starving artist, then that's their life, you know? And it's, they don't, they don't see a place for that. It's my job that pays the bills and I can have my passion in my free time. That's not even a blip on their radar. Yeah. And, and I do think there is, um, 
excuse me, <clears throat> a little bit of of um, of a kind of how do I put it? Like a, a righteous a righteousness about the artist life. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, it's it's got to be this pure thing that you 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 um, essentially sacrificed yourself to. Yeah. And I was clinically depressed through my most of my life until I would say my late twenties. And I and I dealt with um, depression through artistic expression. And I remember when I first got diagnosed, which was quite late. I was because back in the day, you know, nobody was diagnosing teenagers with depression. It mm-hmm. wasn't a thing. And I and I was told I should go on antidepressants. And I remember having this moment of panic right before I put the pill in my mouth because I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to create mm. again. Because my creating, my creations, my creativity comes from my angst and my, yeah. and my sadness and my struggle. And I was terrified because my whole life was art. I, at that point, I, was, I drew, I painted, I, I did, you know, I wrote and I, I acted, I did all of it. Like, I, I was very artistic. And I, and I thought that would end if I didn't I, have the angst anymore. I had that exact same moment. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. And, but like in the end, yeah. I don't know if you had this experience, but did you find that that was total bullshit in the end? Yep, I did. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, totally I bullshit. recently, I recently started a second medication, and I have done so much better with my creativity since then. I was like, exactly. oh. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. Stability and happiness allows me to be productive with my well, creativity. Like shit. suddenly I'm creating <laughs> way more and I'm actually showing people. Like it's actually, I'm putting it out into the world instead of just hauling away in a little dark hole and making things that are never finished and never going anywhere and nothing's happening. And like, it was not productive. It wasn't productive creativity. Nope. It was sort of, um, it was uh, very insular and like sort of self-perpetuating. But yeah, now I, there's this yeah. beautiful like health and freedom and breathing into the creativity that can happen from a place of stability and, and happiness. And I've talked to a lot of people that had the same fear. It's it's actually pretty typical, but nobody talks about it. Right. Well, by the way. Full circle. Why does nobody talk about it? Because we're not talking about our shadows and our darkness as much as we're talking about our righteousness and our creativity and the beautiful things. And right. I do think that like the same thing is true with with children. Like we do it to, even right. to ourselves as adults. And one of the things I said to parents is um, because these books work really well as read aloud books, so they can be read to younger kids. I was reading it to my son when he was three, and he loved it at that age. And I've I've heard from other parents who are like. I was sort of hesitant because it's really scary, but my, my three-year-old loves it or my two-year-old loves it. Like, I'm so confused. But I, I encourage parents who read these books with their kids. Like, it's such a wonderful opportunity for you to open up to your kids about your own vices and struggles. Mm-hmm. Because for your children to, to hear you talk about your imperfections allows them to accept and forgive their own imperfections. Yep. But, you know, most kids think their parents are perfect. And then they read stories where the heroes are pretty flawless. And if you're deeply flawed, it means you're a villain and you deserve to be punished or killed or exiled. And so I think that there is an innate reaction that children have when they screw up that is, oh, that makes me bad. Hmm. I'm bad. And one of the things that I'm very strict about in my home with language is even with people who are around my kids, I encourage people, instead of saying good boy, or Mm -hmm. to say good job, good job. Because what they did was good, but it doesn't change their innate goodness. If they, what they did was bad, it doesn't make them a bad boy. It means they did a poor job or they made a bad choice. But like to distinguish between the action and the, and the person and that good people do bad things. And we all do. Everybody does bad things. There is no character in my books 
who is above reproach. There is no character in my book who is heroic. None of them are. They're all deeply flawed because we are all deeply flawed, whether we want to admit it or not. Every human being is deeply flawed. And and that's the reality that I want to show kids. It's like, yeah, we're all like that. Yeah. So we can laugh at it and we can learn from it and we can make better choices. When you when so, you So, you know, it's a cautionary tale for modern day brats. <laughs> <laughs> when I mean you you mentioned though that, you know, when you first started on Lost, you you weren't happy. You wasn't bringing you joy. And even today, it might not acting might not be your passion, but it's something that, you know, you do to to pay the bills. Um, but you, the flip side of that is that you have been incredibly fortunate in your career to have these roles, you know, the, the three biggest roles, particularly that have had the freedom to grow and develop over, you know, a, 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 more than a single film or, or a single episode. You know, you've had, you know, a hundred episodes on Lost and you had multiple films with Hobbit and, and now Marvel. And that's not an opportunity every actor gets, um, and, and I know they all had very different journeys and we've not seen the end of Hope's story yet. But when you look at those characters and those stories and those journeys, which one are you most satisfied with? Which one do you, are you proudest of? Hmm. That's interesting. I've never been asked that question and therefore <laughs> have never considered it. I've been asked which one I like uh-huh. most, which is very different than what you're asking. Um, well... As you said, Hope's journey is not finished. Mm-hmm. So that's a tricky one to apply to her. Um, I, I'll tell you what, I can, I can start from Kate and say that um, I really was in, excited about the potential for Kate's character and who she was and, and what it meant for how much growth, room for growth there was because mm-hmm. she started out deeply, deeply flawed. And um, I, I don't feel I ever got the satisfaction I was looking for as far as a full character arc and feeling like I came to the end of that show and I could clearly see um, exactly how she'd grown, why she'd grown, and what she'd learned. Mm-hmm. I felt like some of it got a little bit lost in the uh, intensity of the mythology of the show. Mm-hmm. And that that became the priority and the focus. And then the character arcs became secondary. And so I never really felt like I got that, that satisfaction with her. Um, though I was very proud to have played her and will always be proud to have played her. Um, Talia was kind of cool because it, it was left very, she was left, <laughs> you'll see a trend in my face. Uh, she was left with a bad ending. Yeah. Things did not end well for Tauriel. Uh, she ended up, uh, her last scene really was tragic. She was in tears and pain and sorrow. And what I like about that is it allows for two things. One, the imagination, which I think is the most important tool as a viewer or a reader, is that you bring your own creativity to the table. So it allows room for the, the viewer or the reader's imagination to then say, where does she go from here? What happens now? And it's probably the most asked question I, I'm asked about Tauriel is what happened next? Did she, you know, did she end up, did she hook up with Legolas? <laughs> did, she, did she go back? Like, what happens? And I like that. I like that because, this, you know, the second wonderful thing about that is that it's truer to life. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever had anything resolve itself with such a pretty bow as we see in stories. Um, I like the fact that we we can wrap things up with pretty bows and stories because, um, you know, they're stories. They're not life. But it is refreshing sometimes to see things not wrap up and be left more like life, which life always, you know, with every door we close, the question becomes, what's the next one that will open? And where am I going next? There's never, other than the final end, there is no definitive end. So I like that about Tariel. And then hope is like, mid journey you know i don't i don't see her her journey as being finished by any stretch but you know from 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 a virtual orphan you know practically an orphan mm-hmm. a, a girl who lost her mother at 8 years old and her father emotionally abandoned her at the same time to 
a woman who now has an intimate and meaningful relationship with her father and has been reunited with her long dead mother. Um, that's, that's a pretty epic arc. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty great. (laughs) You know, you you say that you've been asked a lot about what happens next for Tariel. I mean, might we see her again on the Amazon series? You know, the nice thing about elves is that they don't age very quickly. So she could be slotted into almost any time period they they choose to tell. <laughs> I have been asked about that as well. I I'm sure you not, have. You know, the way I the way I found out about that series was somebody asking me that question and me going, "I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you talking about?" So I don't know if that if that happens then or if it's in the works. I assume it has yeah. it'll be played by somebody other than me because I have yeah. not heard anything about that. I, well, and even for you know, Jamie and I are both to to some extent Marvel comics readers and you know, are aware that people can come back from the snap and also aware that you can't talk about it. Um, like the stinger in, 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 in the second Ant-Man movie got me as bad as the end of infinity or I just sat there and cried for like 20 minutes. <laughs> right. So. Right. Yes. Well, you know, like you said, I can't, I can't speak to that at all. And frankly, I don't actually know because they keep things so under wraps and nobody has told me anything about what happens after these Infinity War movies are finished. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like you said, anything can happen. (laughs) (laughs) So you haven't had any, you haven't had any Tom Holland or um, Mark Ruffalo moments? Where you think you may oh, have accidentally I, said any something you weren't supposed to say? Oh no, I totally did. I had <laughs> one, but I got so lucky because it got it somehow magically got buried and no one ever heard about it. And I was like sweating bricks for about a week, and then sort of started breathing easier again when I realized, nope, nobody's gonna know it and nobody's gonna see it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh it's man. Hard. It's hard not to slip up. And those guys, you know, I'll tell you what, I, I think there's no consequence that it's always Tom Holland and Mark Ruffalo because those two are such genuine, sweet, open, vulnerable human beings. Their nature is not cagey. You know, their nature is not to like hide and lie and <laughs> pretend and deny. And, you know, they're just, they're just lovers, you know, they just love and their arms are wide open to the world. And they're like, what, what do you want to know? I'll tell you. And, <laughs> and they didn't, and they it. didn't spend <laughs> six years on a show that was surrounded with such deep secrecy. You're used to it. It's his old hat for you. <laughs> oh, that's all I've ever known. I'm like, I'm so excited. I'm doing a, I mean, I'm, I haven't been announced yet, but I'm doing a film this, this fall and I, or not this fall, this spring, and I'm so excited to finally be doing a film that, one, I've actually got a complete script from months <laughs> before we make the film. And who knows, this film might change my whole perspective on acting, by the way, to actually work on a character and develop her and, like, have a script memorized before I start <laughs> doing a job is going to be an incredible luxury. What a novel concept. I'm very excited. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like I can actually do my job the way I'm supposed to. I can research <laughs> and I can prepare. And I, it's very liberating. I'll tell you that much. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, other than that, I've, my career has been full of a lot of secrecy a lot of and a lot of, like, you know, having scripts hand delivered to me by porters that fly across the country because they're not allowed to put it in the mail <laughs> or they're not allowed to email it to me. You know, like it's crazy. It's like, it's like, you know, old, it's like, um, it's like game of Thrones. Yeah. You know, back when they had to have porters carry stuff by hand between Kings to deliver messages and, well, don't wow. don't accept any role on a Star Wars film because you'll just be right back in the thick of that of the secrecy. So who was it who, who actually well, kept the their scripts? Uh oh. When I found out that uh, ages ago now, like a couple years back, I found out that J.J. Abrams was doing was remaking Star Wars, what, rebooting, I should say, rebooting the Star Wars franchise. It was the only time in my career I have ever put a call out saying. I want to be Leia. Yeah. Be Leia. I want to be Leia. <laughs> I was like, that is like, if I, I could be a, a woodland elf and Kate from Lost and Leia 
that sort of covers it. And then I got to be the wasp. I was like, that covers it. That's like all the big franchises. <laughs> and I wanted to be Leia because I was so in love with Leia when I was a little girl. That was my other fantasy. I would dream about being a woodland elf and I would dream about being Leia tied to Jabba the Hutt in her sexy bikini. <laughs> oh, what could have been? What could have been? <laughs> this, you know, uh, yeah, well, and then of course they called me back and we're like, well, there's a, there's a little known actress called Carrie Fisher who's going to be playing <laughs> Princess Leia. I was like, oh, okay. This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.